First Peter chapter 1, verses 23-25 Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is grass, and all the glory of man, as the flower of the grass, the grass withers, and, it fa- and the flower falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is a word which by the gospel was preached to you. Good morning. It is a blessing to be together on this Lord's Day. We're thankful for those who have been leading us in our worship through song and in prayer. We're thankful that we have those who are capable and willing to lead us in our worship to God, the creator of all that is, and that we recognize his great power and his authority in the world. And we are thankful that we have the time to come together to worship to separate ourselves from the world, to renew ourselves in in spiritual matters, in things that would draw us closer to one another and draw us closer to the one true and living God. And you think about the benefits of God's Word. In the book of Romans, chapter 15 and verse 4, the Apostle Paul said, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, So that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. You Think about Paul's ideas and and thoughts here about the Scriptures and how they are beneficial for us. They instruct us. They give us wisdom. They give us knowledge of what God desires. They also give us encouragement. You think about passages that we might turn to whenever we are struggling, whenever there are hardships that we may go through. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one. Passages like Psalm 23 come to mind, where that psalm reiterates that God is our shepherd, that He is with us even when we are facing the reality of death and sorrow. The Scriptures, they have an element that helps provide comfort to us. Comfort because there is hope for those who believe in the words of Scripture. The Scriptures also are beneficial for us that we might appeal to them. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 16 and 17, Paul says there to Timothy, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. You just think about the benefits there that he is highlighting, the benefits of God's Word and the Scriptures, that they are inspired, that They're not rooted in the ideas of man, that they are God's breathed out message and His words that we are reading when we open the Scriptures. We are reading God's message and His thoughts, His will. That's very encouraging to think about. That we are not following somebody's ideas, but we're following the Creator's ideas and His thoughts. And it's profitable. It brings about a great deal of good for us. 
in our teaching so that we can offer instruction, he says. That we can be uh, training ourselves in righteousness and doing what is good and right in the sight of God. Those are all benefits that we have from reading God's Word. But as you think about what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, he highlights another benefit of God's Word. And that is how it is eternal. In 1 Peter chapter 1, in the verses that we just read, in verse 23, he says, For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. And so he says in verse 25, But the Word of the Lord endures forever. And God's Word, it endures. It has stood the test of time. You think about some of the the hymns that we might sing. And some there's a lot of times people have an opinion about, well, I like older hymns or someone likes newer hymns. And the old hymns, I love them because they have stood the test of time. That's one of the things that shows that they are a great hymn, in my opinion, is that if they stand the test of time, if we're singing them you know, a hundred years after they were first written, then that shows that it is meaningful to a wide variety of people under different circumstances that have lived at different times and different places. And that is, in effect, what God's Word is able to do. Only on a much deeper level than just any song that we might sing. But this is God's Word that we're speaking about. That it will stand the test of time. And that is something that Peter is emphatic about. That it will stand the test of time. But why does God's Word stand the test of time? Why is it eternal? Why is it enduring? What makes it so? Well, Peter is quoting from Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah chapter 40. I would invite you to be turning in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah in the 40th chapter. And Isaiah chapter 40 is where we'll be turning to. Because I think Isaiah highlights some of the things that show and proves God's Word as something that would endure. He says in Isaiah chapter 40, and if you would begin reading with me in verse 3, A voice is calling, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass. And all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And as Isaiah is describing here, the making preparations to hear God, that God has a message that is to be spoken And that his prophet Isaiah needs to be ready to hear it and proclaim it. And he says that everyone needs to be ready to heal in the hills and the valleys, that all of them need to be prepared because of God's word is coming. 
A highway is needing to be made for our God, he says there in verse 3. But then he says something that's very interesting there in verse 5. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. When you think about what makes God's word important and significant, it's the fact that it reveals and shows God's glory. That we see God's glory through His Word. Specifically when it confirms God's will as being accomplished. That's what I love about the Word of God is that you can see the prophecies be fulfilled as Mark pointed out at the table as we partook. Uh, as he looked at the book of Zechariah in chapter 6, he went to that prophecy, I think a very powerful prophecy that the Hebrew writer is certainly drawing upon. That talking about Jesus as holding two offices, being king and high priest at the same time. You see the testimony of Scripture. And you see how prophecies are fulfilled. And that is very convincing. It's extremely convincing to see a prophecy be made, and then you see its fulfillment in history later on. In Isaiah chapter 55, Isaiah, as he is talking about the Word of God and the promises that he makes, specifically in Isaiah chapter 55, he's talking about the sure mercies of David. He calls them the sure mercies, not the maybe mercies of David, but he says the sure, the certain mercies of David, they have been promised by God. And he says in Isaiah chapter 55 and in verse 11, as he's talking about God's Word, so will my Word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. God's Word will not return to Him void, as some translations might say. God's Word is powerful, and when it shows that His will has been accomplished, that is a reason to praise God. That is a reason to praise God because that did not happen by accident. It showed that God has control over things. That God is invested in His creation. One of the best um, prophecies, in my opinion, about how prophecy works and that the prophets that were able to predict certain things and name certain things as going to happen is found in Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 44. In Isaiah chapter 44, this is taking place a couple of hundred years before this would ever happen. Okay? You have to remember when Isaiah is uh, is prophesying in 700s BC, and he looks forward in time to after the exile when Judah would go into Babylonian captivity, and then they would also be able to go back home. So we're talking at least 70 years after the captivity begins. In Isaiah chapter 44, and the very last verse, it says there in verse 28, it is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. It was in history that we learn 
you go to 2 Chronicles chapter 36, at the end of that chapter, we learn that after the exile, it was Cyrus who became king, and he was the one who issued a decree that Jerusalem could go and be rebuilt. Isaiah is prophesying something about 200 years ago. That is like the same thing as whenever this nation was being founded, that they were going to say, in the year 2000, in the 2000s, you'd have George W. Bush being a president, that you'd have Barack Obama as a president, you'd have Tr Donald Trump as a president, and that you would have Joe Biden as a president. No, that's the kind of prophecy that is being fulfilled here. That's the kind of statement, that kind of specificity. 200 years before. That's convincing that God is orchestrating things to take place. To show God and His glory. We see that when we open up God's Word. When we see that God's will is accomplished, the Word of the Lord is proven. And it stands the test of time because it is proven. But turning back to Isaiah chapter 40, you see there in verse 6, in Isaiah chapter 40 and in verse 6, a voice says, Call out. Then he answered, What shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the grass, of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. You have this contrast here, this comparison and contrast with the, the field and the grass and the flowers and things that you might find out in nature and the loveliness uh, that it brings. But we know, just as you watch in a year, now things are starting to bud, but we know come October, November, those things will die, won't they? That they will go grow dormant. And that's what is being contrasted here with the Word of God, the Word of the Lord. It's not like that. He says in verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. And because it does stand forever, that gives us an inclination of its nature. That this is something that is permanent. It's unchangeable. Peter uses the word enduring. That it endures through all circumstances. Through all situations. The Word of God endures. Because of that, it's unchangeable. It is something that did not originate in man's thoughts or man's ideas. And what Isaiah is trying to show that God's messengers, God's prophets are bound to speak. As he's putting all of this and framing it in the context there in verse 6, a voice says, call out. Then he answers, what shall I call out? Well, you are supposed to be preaching the words of the Lord and you have no authority to say otherwise. That's certainly something that Peter draws upon in 1 Peter chapter 4. Just a couple of chapters later, after Peter is quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, he says in 1 Peter chapter 4 and in verse 11, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God or the oracles of God. 
If you're going to speak, if you're going to be teaching and preaching from the Scriptures, you better be preaching what the Scriptures say. You better be preaching what God has spoken. Not your opinions, but what God's Word says. And you have no business changing that. You have no right to change it. Because God is the author of the words. Thus, the one who is speaking, myself included, is bound by what God's words say. His words begin to take on authority. I have no business changing them. I have no power to change it. In the meaning that it might have. We have no right to alter or change His words. In the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 13, in Hebrews the 13th chapter, notice here with me, in Hebrews chapter 13, and beginning in verse 7, in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods through which those who were so occupied in were not benefited. What I think the Hebrew writer is trying to show and highlight here for us is you notice there in verse 7, he says, remember those who have spoken God's Word to you. Remember that. Remember how you have been taught. Remember those who have taught you. And then he makes, in verse 9, this statement about do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. He wants them to remain faithful. And right smack dab in the middle of those two ideas, what does he say in verse 8? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. That the teachings about Christ, the teachings of the Gospel, they stay the same. Jesus Christ stays the same. And so His Word stays the same. The Gospel stays the same. And so remember those who have taught you the faith. Remember them. Follow their ways. Follow the teachings. Because they were holding to the pattern of sound words. But be cautious. Don't be led astray by those who might lead you astray. Do not be carried away by the varied and strange teachings that might be out there. Because some people try to distort and twist God's Word. Because they may not like it. They may not agree with it. It might be personal to them. And that they realize that they are not following God's Word as they ought to. They are like the grass that withers up. As Isaiah says. But the Word of God, it endures forever. Jesus Christ endures forever. And then a third element of God's Word that we see that is highlighted particularly by Peter. Here in 1 Peter chapter 1. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and in verse 23. He says, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living 
and enduring Word of God. He compares the Word of God to a seed. Jesus did that in the parable of the sower. The seed is the Word of God, Jesus said. And that seed, it contains life. It contains life within that seed. And so He says, you have not been born again of seed that is corruptible or perishable, but a seed that is imperishable and an eternal and living and enduring Word. That you have been born again. That you have been saved. You've been given new life, Peter says. And that life comes from the Word of God. James says the same kind of thing in James chapter 1. In James chapter 1 and in verse 18, James says, in the exercise of His will, that is God's will, He brought us forth by the Word of truth. He brought us forth or He begot us. We are begotten by God. We are born again. Same idea. James is picking up on. And how did God save us? How have we been born again? By the Word of truth. Of course, we're all very familiar with the book of Romans, I'm sure. In Romans chapter 1, where Paul says that it is the Gospel that is God's power to save. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. What you have here is Peter, Paul, and James all saying the same thing. That Spiritual life, eternal life, it begins with the Word of God. That God's Word has power to give life. The the Word of God can change you. It can give you life. It can give you hope. And no wonder Paul was able to say that statement in the book of Romans in chapter 15 when he was talking about the comfort of the Scriptures in Romans chapter 15 and in verse 4 that we might have hope. The Word of God is very powerful. And since God's Word reveals His glory, and it is eternally permanent, God's Word is authoritative. God's Word governs us. And we must believe His Word and His promises if we want to have the hope of eternal salvation. And you come to think about God's Word, I appreciate very much the songs that we've been led in this morning that have focused our minds and our attention on the Word of God. Give me the Bible, we say. The law of the Lord in Psalm 19 is perfect, converting the soul. We have sung those words this morning to think about the benefits of Scripture. The Word of the Lord is beneficial for us and it is helpful for us. And God's Word shows His glory. And because of that, we need to recognize God as the author. And if we recognize God as the author, the Creator of all things, the One who has given us the Scriptures and who has made known His mind to us, 
And we need to respect what He says. Because His Word matters. Think about the word authority. Sometimes that's a word that we people don't like or that we think it's suitable in, in some frames of discussion, but not in religious matters. You just think about the word authority. And you take the first part of that word, author. We're just recognizing God as the author. And that because God and who He is and all the things that we have been looking at so far in our study this morning, that it reveals His glory, that it's unchangeable, it's permanent, it's enduring, all those words, and that it is able to give life. All those different ideas come from God. God is capable of doing all that He says. And so when we talk about His Word, His Word gives a certain amount of authority that we have to recognize and we have to be willing to accept. Because when we talk about the Word of the Lord, we're talking about authority. Since God's Word is what governs us, we must look within the Scriptures to know what we must do for what is pleasing and right to God. We have to look to the Scriptures for approval for anything that we believe, anything that we teach or practice. And if something is not found in the Scriptures, then we have to be extremely cautious. We cannot just assume that, well, it's not in there, so it must be right. We have to be very careful before we make that kind of jump. Because even if something seems innocent enough to us, even if something seems okay, or like maybe at the end of it, there's a lot of good that's accomplished. We still have to be very careful about making that assumption. I wish we could have a conversation with Nadab and Abihu, book of Leviticus. They offered strange fire before God. Remember? And something that seemed innocent enough, something that might have been subtle enough of a change, but there was a change. And it was something that was not pleasing to God. And so, excuse me, and so God consumed them with fire. You remember that, I'm sure. The Bible, it reveals the mind of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in 1 Corinthians the second chapter, In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul, as he is talking about and contrasting the person who is spiritually minded versus the person who is carnally minded and worldly minded, he's contrasting that and he says that the person who is spiritually minded is seeking to follow God's Word. And so he says at the very end, he quotes uh, from the Old Testament and he has this question. For who has known the mind of the Lord that He will instruct him? And then He supplies the answer, but we have the mind of Christ. We don't have to wonder what God's will is. Paul is saying we have God's will. We have His Word right here with us. And since God has revealed his mind and His will to us through Jesus Christ, 
We are reading what God wants us to do when we open up the Scriptures. And you think about matters in which we need to ask ourselves. And again, authority is something that a lot of people might shy away from discussing, especially in religious matters. Well, I think we just need to do whatever feels right. Or I think we need to do what I want to do. Because God is going to accept whatever it is that we offer Him in worship. I've heard people make such statements. But there are some things that the Scriptures present to us that remain permanent and must never be removed. In Acts chapter 2, in the first Gospel sermon Peter preached, when the people asked him, Sirs, what must we do? He said, Repent, and every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Baptism in the, for the forgiveness of your sins is something that is permanent and that we should not change. You know why we can say that? Not just because it's in one verse, but you can look throughout all of the book of Acts and you see the cumulative effect of each and every conversion that takes place. There is someone who recognizes they are in sin, they need to change, they believe in Christ, they're willing to repent and confess, and they are baptized in water for forgiveness of their sins. That's just one example of things that need to never change. It needs to always remain the same. And we need to continue to preach and teach that and defend that idea. Think about elders and deacons in the local church in Acts chapter 14. What we see as the pattern there in Acts chapter 14 and verse 23 with Paul and Barnabas as they are revisiting the churches that they had just established on that first missionary journey, it says in verse 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Elders and deacons in every church, that was something that becomes a pattern that we need to not change. We don't need to adapt that and modify it and change it. We need to be consistent with that. We need to hold to that pattern. We need, as local congregations, we need to be committed to doing the Lord's work in the way that God has prescribed for us to do so. In Acts chapter 11, in Acts chapter 11, you think about the situation there. In Acts chapter 11, we learn that there was a famine that was about to take place. Agabus the prophet, he had come up to Antioch from Jerusalem and he began prophesying about a famine that was going to occur during the reign of Claudius Caesar. And so upon hearing that, the church in Antioch, they took up a collection. They took up a collection and they sent the funds that they had raised, they sent it by the hands of Barnabas and Saul to go to the elders of the church in Jerusalem and in Judea and the congregations that were there. In just matters of congregational finances, benevolence was provided from congregation to congregation or peer to peer 
Not through another group or organization or even another local church. They didn't send funds funneling it through another group to accomplish it. One group sent to another group. That's the pattern that we see. We see evangelistic efforts through churches, not through a conglomerate of churches, or through a missionary society. In Acts chapter 13 and in verses 1 through 3, where Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch and the Holy Spirit tells the church there, the leaders of the church, the teachers, to set aside Barnabas and Saul for the work that they were to be sent on. And this may seem tedious or it may seem like, what's the big deal? The big deal is that God's Word says this. It shows us how these things are to be done. But there are other issues that I believe might even be more pertinent to us at times. Questions surrounding marriage and divorce and remarriage. Think about what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19. And you might be thinking, well, why are we talking about this in discussion with authority? can't think of a better place to discuss it. Because in Matthew chapter 19, you think about what Jesus says here. In Matthew chapter 19 and in verse 9, Jesus had been asked about divorce. He had been asked about whether it was permissible to divorce someone just for any cause or any reason whatsoever. And Jesus, He doesn't talk to them about divorce. He talks to them about marriage. He says that from the beginning, it was not so. That God created them male and female. And He said that he says in verse 6, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. He throws divorce completely out of the equation at this point in the discussion. They keep coming back to it and asking Him again. And then Jesus says in verse 9, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality, sexual immorality, and marries another woman commits adultery, He says. And sometimes we'll spend a whole sermon on marriage and divorce, and I've preached that sermon where we, we look at different situations and if, if this person can remarry or if this person is, uh, cannot remarry, I've done that before. But I think the simplest way to approach it is a question that we need to ask. Who has authority to remarry or to marry in the first place? That's a whole lot easier of a question, actually. Because there are only three persons that are authorized in Scripture to marry. Only three. Someone who is single. That's pretty easy, isn't it? Someone who is widowed. Again, that's a pretty easy one. And what Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 9, that the person who puts their spouse away for adultery if, you don't, if you're not one of those three people, then you don't have divine authority to marry or remarry. Questions surrounding that then become a lot easier. Because we need to ask ourselves, what does God's Word teach? What is authorized? Who is authorized to engage in whatever activity it might be? 
You think about fornication and adultery in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and in verse 3, where Paul is really emphasizing a high sexual ethic. He says in verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. That you need to keep yourself holy and sanctified in your vessel, your body. You need to keep yourself in holiness for the Lord. Not in just doing whatever you want to do and whatever you want to engage in. That's a very different kind of thinking though, isn't it? Than what is often purported by the world. So we have to ask ourselves, do I have approval to be with the person that I am with? Do I have approval from God and the Scriptures to engage in, in this kind of activity with this person? If I'm not married, then no, you don't. If you are not living by what God's Word says, then we are in extreme danger of bringing dishonor to our body and to the Lord. We live in a world where there seems to be no boundaries regarding sexual ethics. And if you preach what the Bible says, then you can be labeled some really, really nasty names. But what we see is that there is no approval. That deals with the homosexual issue and the question there, doesn't it? That if it's not between a man and a woman... It's not approved by God. Regardless of feelings and emotions and whether you love somebody or not, if it's not approved by God, then we don't have any business engaging in that kind of activity. The book of James brings up the issue of speech. In James chapter 3, in James chapter 3 and as James is going through and he's warning about the use of the tongue or the abuse of the tongue. He says in verse 9, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Before we say something, we need to frame it in this context of do I have authority to say such a thing? Do I have the right and approval from God to say such a thing? If I don't, I better not say it. Everything that we do, every choice that we make, every word that we say, everything that we do, it needs to be filtered through this idea of do I have divine approval and authority for it? If I don't, then I need to abstain. The Apostle Paul taught us a very important principle in the book of Colossians, in Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians chapter 3, and in verse 17, whatever you do, 
in word or deed. Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Whatever it is that we do, in word or deed, whether it's what we say, what we preach or teach, or it's just our normal everyday actions, or it's our worship activity, whatever it is that we do needs to be brought under the authority of God and His Word. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You think about what God's Word is able to do. God is able to save us from our sins through His Word, the Word of truth. And when the people in Acts chapter 2 were asked, they asked, what shall we do? Peter told them what they needed to do. They needed to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. That's what God's Word is capable of doing. Because God is capable of saving you from the wrath that is to come. Are you willing to believe God's Word? Are you willing to obey it? If you will obey it, that is how you can know you have eternal life. God's Word gives us knowledge, and that knowledge gives us hope. If you're not in a right relationship with the Lord, then we want you to come to Him today. We want you to come to Him for salvation and forgiveness of your sins. If you've never been baptized in water, we want you to come this morning to become a Christian and a child of God, be having your sins washed away. Perhaps it is you have made that choice and that commitment, but you've not been living faithfully. Will you not come back to the Lord today before it's eternally too late? We're here to pray with you and pray for you and help you in every way that we possibly can. If you're subject to the Lord's invitation, would you come now as we stand and as we sing?